You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner. It's collected works number 218, entitled Spirit as Sculptor of the Human Organism, uh, translated by Matthew Barton. This is lecture 15, given in Berlin on the 7th of December, 1922. I am very pleased to be able to speak to you here again at this branch group of our Anthroposophical Society where for many years I was fortunate enough to develop a good deal of my work. Today I want to speak to you about things that I think are particularly important at present, about how we human beings are connected with the supersensible world. This, of course, is a theme always current in the anthroposophic movement, but you will by now have accustomed yourselves to the fact that we can only come into full possession of truths about supersensible worlds when we consider them from the most varied points of view. As I have often pointed out, we can then gain an overall sense of things from pictures taken, as it were, from different angles. Human life is, of course, divided into two divergent states, occurring at different times that of full wakefulness and that of sleep. As you know, spiritual scientific research has shown that during sleep, the aspects of our nature that we call the physical body, the etheric body, or body of formative forces, the astral body and the capital I are separated. We leave our physical and etheric body behind, as it were, in the physical world, and lead an initially unconscious existence in our astral body and I-being, outside of the physical body and etheric body. When we rise to higher knowledge, it is not true to say that by this means alone, through knowledge, we gain anything for our human nature itself, just as little as theoretical knowledge of digestion will directly improve the latter's functions in the normal state of our organism. Higher knowledge does not of itself introduce anything new into us. What higher knowledge reveals is already present in us, and yet it is also true to say that what introduces nothing new into us nevertheless points us to what remains hidden from our ordinary awareness, and which when we not only perceive it but also experience it with the full content of our soul, does then infuse a higher reality into the human being. Not knowledge as such, but an experience of this knowledge. Here, though, I am referring to something I would like to present in terms of a threefold anthroposophic endeavor. First of all, there must be individuals who develop spiritual scientific methods to a degree that enables them to offer knowledge of supersensible worlds gained through higher vision. 
it is not so important what name we give to the acquisition of this knowledge. We can gladly speak of clairvoyant knowledge as long as we do not associate this expression with some kind of nebulous, mystical idea, as is very often the case. Clairvoyant insight does give rise to a living content that must increasingly inform human sensibilities in our present era. The second aspect is this, that ordinary, healthy common sense, if people's minds are sufficiently open, can see the validity of what clairvoyant knowledge reveals. I have said this on many occasions. A person does not need to be clairvoyant himself in order to see the value of what clairvoyant research brings to light. But it is also important that someone who himself develops clairvoyant vision can translate what he sees into ordinary human concepts. For people today at our current stage of development, the important thing is precisely that clairvoyant knowledge be translated into human concepts prevalent in modern civilization. Whether or not one is clairvoyant, one has to be able to understand what clairvoyant research reveals. The third thing is that clairvoyant research, translated into human concepts and thus pictured or understood, must then become a living content in people so that they realize they are beings whose existence is not bound solely to earthly reality between birth and death. They must know that they are beings for whom earthly life is only a phase, a transitionary stage of metamorphosis. Everything that can inform human sensibility as living content of this kind through anthroposophy must take root in the soul. Then people know that they belong to worlds of spirit and also that the tasks of earthly existence are given them from these worlds. But secondly, too, this gives them a sense of responsibility toward worlds of spirit. It raises them beyond mere earth existence, though not in a way that induces them to flee it or denigrate it in a kind of airy-fairy mysticism. No, our tasks in life, and consequently the whole character and cadence of our life on earth, must be drawn from the supersensible world. In our times, it is particularly important that we first learn to attend to what can be stated through clairvoyant research, and that we then endeavor to understand the content of this research by our healthy common sense, making this content into something we work upon in life, illumining life with the tasks that arise from it, and enhancing our sense of responsibility toward worlds of the Spirit. These introductory words aim to set the mood and tone of my observations today, which offer various new aspects of our relationship with worlds of spirit. Living here on earth, we open our senses to the physical world. And looking inward, we perceive, in a sense, our thinking, feeling and will. What we perceive through our senses and make into the content of our soul is also what we call our earthly surroundings. As earthly human beings in our physical surroundings, we are really very familiar with what we call the outer world, 
the natural world around us. But, by comparison, our ordinary state of awareness tells us very little about what lies within our own being, even physically. External science does provide knowledge of our inner organs, but really only by making these organs outward entities, for knowledge about them is gained largely through dissection and so forth. By looking inward, with his ordinary faculties, a person cannot gain knowledge about, say, his lungs or heart. At the most, we might be able to feel or perceive these organs when they are malfunctioning. In a healthy state, we do not really perceive what is happening within us. It lives in us, functions within us. But precisely because it is in us and constitutes us, we do not perceive it as we perceive the surroundings from which we distinguish ourselves. This can show us that our perception of what is outside and around us gives us a world, a content, whereas our gaze inward gives us only the general vague feeling of an I capital. If we are honest, we will admit that this is a very dim and unclear perception. We alternate between this inward gaze, a fairly unclear and opaque experience in the soul, and our experience of tangible detailed surroundings, full of specific content. Basically, this alternating experience fills our awareness between birth and death. Between death and a new birth, our experience is very different, and especially different at the midpoint of this, experience, of this existence, corresponding, if you like, to the middle period of earthly life, when as 30 or 40-year-olds we are at the peak of our physical powers. This midpoint of life after death is diametrically opposite to earthly life. We gaze inward with the different consciousness we then possess. And in doing so we see things in as specific and tangible a way as we observe our outer surroundings here on earth. But when we observe our surroundings on earth, we see the three or four kingdoms of nature, minerals, plants, animals, and the physical aspect of human beings. They surround us as the content of our sensory perception. But when we gaze inward during the time I am referring to, between death and a new birth, instead of the things of nature, we find within us a world of beings, those we describe as beings of higher spiritual realms, of the hierarchies. Here on earth we have outer perception of the world, perception of things, while in the world of spirit, we have inner perception, perception of beings. We look into ourselves, but we do not find there organs such as those we possess on earth. Instead, as long as we can have the right awareness of this, we find the whole world of beings. Someone who describes these beings of the higher hierarchies is really describing nothing other than the human being's outward experience between death and a new birth. And when, in the same way as we can here direct our gaze away from the outer world and look inward upon ourselves, we direct our gaze outward, away from the beings of the higher hierarchies within us, then we discover ourself, come to ourselves. After death, the outer world really becomes inner world and inner world becomes outer, in the way I have now explained. 
The world within us we perceive as full of spiritual beings becomes a kind of image or reflection in earthly existence. Here we see the sensory reflections of those beings whom we perceive within us between death and a new birth. We do not see the beings themselves as such, but instead their dwelling places. And these are, since there are always a host of these beings together, the starry heavens around us. What, therefore, are we describing when we speak of the stars or the sun, for instance, when we speak with full knowledge rather than the mole vision of ordinary awareness we possess between birth and death? The sun offers a certain image to our sensory gaze, but what we see as the image of the sun here is something we perceive between death and a new birth as a realm of spiritual beings. We see a realm of spiritual beings, not the image we see here. Here in earthly existence we have a kind of memory which tells us that this realm of spiritual beings corresponds to the sun we see from an earthly perspective. And this is true too of the other stars. So our spiritual awareness between death and a new birth is a cosmic one. There we are not enclosed within our skin as we are here, but have truly become the whole world. But we should not think of this in spatial terms. We become the whole universe and carry the starry heavens within us. Just as we have our lungs, heart and stomach inside us here, so between death and a new birth we carry the sun, the moon, Saturn and the other planets and stars inside us as our inner organs, but they are spiritual beings. We carry in us their spiritual correlate, their spiritual archetype. If we were always in this condition in the spiritual world, we would never come back to ourselves, would always feel ourselves to be one with the world of the higher hierarchies. But that cannot be. That would be like always only breathing in and never out. This is why our life between death and a new birth consists of a rhythmic alternation, a life within these higher hierarchies and in a cosmic form of consciousness, in looking outward, which there means coming back to ourselves, just as we alternate here between in-breath and out-breath, or I could also say between being awake and being asleep. So there we alternate between an experience of the hierarchies, the world of spirit, and an experience of ourselves, where we come to ourselves and feel the loneliness of our contracted soul. Thus we have a recurring rhythmic alternation of experience between being spread out through the whole universe and coming back to ourselves. This life between death and a new birth in the spiritual world, whose physical reflection is the world of stars, is certainly not less rich than life on earth. In earthly life, though, we can only really see the result of what we experience between death and rebirth, and only in a very indistinct way. Think of it like this. Here in life on earth, one person may make shoes, another makes dresses, a third is a hairdresser, a fourth is an engineer, and so on. As we do these things here on earth, what is called human culture develops, civilization. 
If you now imagine that from time to time the emergence of this whole civilization, its artifacts and effects, were to be summarized in a kind of overall outcome in a quite different realm, say, on the sun, it would not be immediately possible to perceive it with sun consciousness as the result of earthly civilization. On the sun there would just be many specimens of a single outcome. This is, in fact, the reality of what we do in collaboration with the beings of the higher hierarchies, between death and a new birth. We work there with these beings to create the spirit form of our physical body on earth. And this work, done in collaboration between human beings and the beings of the higher hierarchies, to create the spirit form of our future physical body, is truly a richer and more diverse kind of activity than goes into the cultural artifacts we create in physical existence. This is true even though the physical human body standing before us may not immediately betray the fact that it is the result of the work of divine beings in collaboration with the human being during his existence between death and a new birth. But older civilizations were aware of this when they called the body a, quote, temple of the gods, close quote. As long as we normally realize this with our ordinary consciousness here on earth, this human body is the most complex thing existing anywhere in the universe. A single human body is the confluence and totality of the work of countless beings, of whom we too are one. We help to work on the body with which we clothe ourselves in an earthly incarnation. We would not be able to elaborate it individually for ourselves, but have to create it in community with countless spiritual beings of the most diverse ranks. From an earthly perspective, we are used to regarding a seed as something that is small to start with and then unfolds to occupy greater physical space. If we call what we elaborate between death and a new birth the spirit seed or spirit germ of the physical body, this spirit seed is in fact as vast as the universe and grows ever smaller physically as it passes through the embryo stage. The small fertilized human human ovum contains a reflection of this great spirit seed that has been elaborated by the human being together with higher beings. If we use spiritual vision to study the world human beings live in between death and a new birth, we find how the tasks of the macrocosm give rise to the microcosm, the human body, which is continually configured anew. And this task is more sublime than all cultural endeavor accomplished by human beings during life on earth. The life we spend there, working from the universe upon the human seed, is more varied and richer than what we accomplish here on earth when, say, we make shoes or clothes, teach children, rule nations, and so on. I could, of course, go on and on with the list. Anyone who really wishes to understand the world must grasp the fact that it is an extraordinarily sublime thing to share in this task of the universe, in configuring the human body as it exists here on earth in physical reflection, 
and that the nature of this task is incomparably more sublime than what we accomplish here on earth. Even when we are involved in creating the most valuable cultural products of physical life. Between death and a new birth, we dwell in the world of spirit. Our outer world is ourself. Our gaze looks toward our future life on earth. And with this in view, we contract and come to ourselves. Excuse me, we contract and come to ourselves. When our consciousness is filled with this view of our future life on earth and with looking back to our past life, we are aware of self. When we work together with beings of the higher hierarchies at the task of creating the spirit seed of our complex human body, we are in a sense outside ourselves and have become one with spirit being, live with spirit being out in the universe. Specifically at the culmination of our experience between death and a new birth, which I called the midnight hour of human existence in one of my mystery plays, the human being experiences his inner life as the starry heavens he sees here on earth in reflected form, the heaven of fixed stars. The world of fixed stars, or their representative, as older cultures called it, the zodiac, is from our earthly perspective, the physical image or reflection of the spiritual world in which we live between death and a new birth, and which we then experience as our inner world. This continues for a certain period, and then we depart, in a sense, from this living, active work, which must appear sublime from an earthly perspective, and is accomplished in direct collaboration with spirits of the higher hierarchies. The next experience we have is that of witnessing the revelations of higher beings. We are no longer directly involved in their work, but they still show reflections of themselves to us. In earthly terms we can say that we find a transition from the world of fixed stars to the world of planets. As we pass through the planetary sphere in our progress toward an earthly existence, we no longer feel the life of higher worlds, as our inner life. Previously we felt it to be our inner life. Here in the physical world we feel the circulation of our blood, our breathing, and so on, as the inner workings of our organism. There in life between death and a new birth, we feel the life and being of the higher hierarchies to be our inner life. We stand within a spiritual reality and participate in it. But now, from a certain moment onward, we realize we are no longer participating. Instead, it is as if an image appears to us of something we have previously worked on. Before we were actually in the spiritual world, now we are in its manifestations. But this means, in reality, that we have left the sphere of the fixed stars and have entered the planetary sphere. Here, initially, we have to overcome a certain difficulty which involves entry into the Saturn sphere. Specific spiritual forces emanate from Saturn. You see, once we have passed through death, we first enter the planetary sphere and then that of the fixed stars, tracing the path I have just described in the opposite direction. As we depart from earthly life, 
Saturn is the dwelling place of beings who do not want us to remain on earth, but lift us away from it and seek to liberate us from earthly forces. They try to convey us onward, out into the world of pure spirituality. In my book titled Theosophy, I described this endeavor from another perspective as the transition from life in soul land to that in spirit land. These two accounts relate to each other in the same way that one can photograph a tree from different angles. The tree is the same, but looks different from different angles. As we return to a new life on earth, therefore, we again fall under the sway of Saturn beings. And those whose karma, due to their previous life on earth, allows Saturn forces to exert a strong influence on them as they return easily become people without a strong earth connection, who either rhapsodize about earthly things having no worth and take flight into some cloud cuckoo land of ideas, or who, regarding human relationships and circumstances in a superficial way, are inclined to get involved in spiritualist seances and such like, inviting the rampant activity of very diverse spiritual beings. All this is due to the fact that in his last life a person acquired a karma that led him into a stronger connection with Saturn forces as he returned to the earth. But as we enter the planetary sphere on our passage toward the earth, we also fall under the influence of beings opposite to those of Saturn, those who dwell on the moon. The primary task of these beings is to lead the human being into earthly existence again. Someone who absorbs this influence will stand fast in earthly existence, although, on the other hand, moon forces can also mean that we are too strongly involved in purely physical life and develop a preference for this physicality. In our life on earth we walk around amongst trees, flowers, grasses, animals, and so on while between death and a new birth we wander about amongst the stars. You can form quite a full and real picture of this if you think of it like this. In earthly life you are here on earth, while after death you pass through the spheres of the planets, leaving the moon sphere, and with it an inclination for earth life, passing through Saturn, then spending a relatively long time compared with your life on earth in the sphere of fixed stars, then returning, entering the planetary sphere again, and especially as you come under the moon's influence, finding there, though still in supersensible existence, the impetus to return again to earth. You are drawn strongly back to earth life. In the same way that we have a certain relationship with what we call our sensory surroundings, the same is true as we pass through the world of stars. And all this has great significance for our collaboration with the beings of the higher hierarchies to create the spirit seed or spirit germ of our physical human body. As we reach the planetary sphere in our downward trajectory toward our future life on earth, we decide whether we will become a man or woman. For quite a while this remains undecided while we dwell as soul spiritual beings in the planetary sphere. In the sphere of the fixed stars, 
something resembling our earthly gender distinction would be nonsensical. But in the picture I am trying to convey, you can see things like this. Here is the moon, seen from in front. But in the world of spirit you see it from behind. Venus, Mercury and the sun you likewise see from behind. Then you see the zodiac, sphere and so on. But in your passage through these spheres, what is a physical image or reflection for us here is transformed into a wealth of spiritual beings whom you perceive. As you regard the moon from behind you, as you let me read that again, as you regard the moon from behind, you see spirit beings. For instance, those who were of prime interest to the initiates in Old Testament times, the Yahweh being and beings belonging to him. But when you now return to the earth and approach the moon's sphere, as a result of your former karma, you can seek out the point in time at which, from the earth's perspective, the full moon is in the sky. On earth you will see the illumined face of the full moon, but from behind, approaching the earth, you see a black disk. If you choose this moment to approach the earth when the black moon sphere, uninfluenced by the sun, acts upon you, and when, therefore, it is full moon on earth, you will be born on earth in female form. If instead you choose the period when we do not see the moon here on earth, a new moon, when sun influences shine unhindered through the cosmos in all directions, then you will be arranging life for yourself in a male body. Right down to the physical gender we assume, you see, we have to trace the effects of what we experience as we pass through the spiritual sphere between death and a new birth and see these effects from an opposite perspective to that on earth. These things can be traced in every detail of our life here. In the same way that we can discover the different effects of eating cabbage or eggs or meat, for our physical existence on earth is dependent on such things, so likewise there are all kinds of connections in spiritual worlds which come to expression in our form and inner vitality on earth. Here on earth we eat eggs or meat, in the world of spirit between death and a new birth, in accordance with our karma, we choose either to pass through the moon sphere at the time of new moon or full moon, and thereby become a man or a woman. The full scope of our human existence in relation to the cosmos is something we can only understand if we lift our gaze from what happens between birth and death alone to see that what occurs during this life on earth is connected with what happens between our death and rebirth. Today people do not yet grasp the full real significance of this, yet our knowledge of the human being is about as extensive as a mole's knowledge of museums. A mole may burrow below the floor of a museum and might even be able to tell us of his experiences underground, but his account will have very little to say about what is above his head. Sciences that confine their gaze to the earth are roughly like this. The difference is that a mole can do perfectly well without the things over his head. He doesn't have much use for museums, whereas we are intimately connected with the supersensible world, are really connected with it, and we ought to gain an awareness of this world once more. 
A dull awareness of such things did once exist, illumined by the ancient mysteries, albeit using ancient methods. These mysteries were not narrow enclaves of worship, a state of affairs that has really come about only in modern times. Today, people have to celebrate their rites in ways that are distinct and separate from the rest of culture, and this is because humanity has become egotistical and seeks some assurance of its immortality. That is all well and good. Such an assurance can be given. But people today have a great capacity to keep things separate, sundered. At the time of Paracelsus, this was not yet so, Medicine was still a form of religious worship. We do need distinctions, and yet we ought to come to see all earthly activity as the fruit of spiritual influences and activity again. Today people pass through their experiences on earth in a way that is sundered from the spiritual world. And this is necessary, for otherwise we could not achieve a sense of freedom. And yet the time is now past, when human beings should keep separate from spiritual existence, shut themselves off from it, our consciousness must once again imbue itself with the inner illumination of spiritual existence. And we can no longer use ancient methods for doing this. We have to learn how this can be achieved today by modern means. Just picture this for a moment. An ancient mystery site took care of the concerns of its surrounding area through the knowledge enshrined in it. This duty of care extended to all the affairs and activities of those living in the vicinity, all the matters that could only be organized through insight into a connection between life on earth and the world of spirit. Let us assume that a person fell ill. In olden times, no one asked what substances had been tested for their effect on the human organism. Still less did anyone inquire into the effect of substances that had been tried out on animals. Such empiricism inevitably entered modern life, and I am not criticizing medicine today, just surveying how things developed through evolution. In ancient times, someone who fell ill sought assistance from the mystery centers, since priests were simultaneously artists and physicians. Art, religion, and science were still one, and were cultivated in mystery centers. In those days a complete holistic view of the human being still prevailed. When someone of a certain age contracted a particular disease, people knew this was not just to do with a chemical mix or disorder of substances in him, but from a higher perspective they saw it was connected with experiences he had undergone as he passed through the starry worlds and started to seek his new earthly existence there. Think of someone who fell ill, say, between the age of 14 and 21, and turned for help to a mystery center, which was at the same time a center of healing and medicine. Though the knowledge at work there would be instinctive and dreamy, the examination given to such a patient would often reveal more than modern consultations with a doctor do. I have known doctors who in discussions showed they knew nothing about certain vital aspects of their patient, not even his age. One can't, of course, help improve a person's health without knowing what age he is. 
You see, a person needs a different remedy at different ages since the character of human life is constantly changing. No one would think of planting a petal in the ground and waiting for a new plant to grow from it. But we take a seed from the fruit and plant that, since we know how plants develop. Human life should be regarded in a similar way. So if a patient aged between roughly 14 and 21 came to seek help from a mystery physician in those times, the latter knew that there were a number of disorders connected with the human being's passage through the sun's sphere as the soul descends from the planetary world into the physical world. If the patient was aged between 35 and 42, the mystery priest knew which illnesses were connected with the soul's descending passage through the Saturn sphere. In other words, he would inquire chiefly into the way our experiences in the life between death and a new birth are connected with earthly life. He also knew how the external nature of the stars, as seen from earth, their physical reflections, related to the beings of the higher hierarchies. Certain plants have a more intimate connection with the sun, while others are more closely related to Saturn, and so forth. By bringing a healthy instinct to bear upon the profuse flowering of some plants, you can see that they have a different relationship to the sun than a fungus or the lichen on a tree. Someone aged between 14 and 21, suffering from a disorder of the stomach or heart, will certainly not be cured with tea made from Iceland moss. And the ancient mystery centers would have been aware of this too, and would have looked to the juice of a sun-related plant, knowing this through their insight into the connection between human life and the cosmos. Knowledge of this kind has been lost. Humanity has passed through a period of darkness and must regain these insights, but at a higher level now, illumined by our modern intelligence. They must and can be rediscovered, and the anthroposophic worldview is the start of this rediscovery of humanity's spiritual illumination in all areas of life. The human being descends into the planetary sphere, and a time arrives shortly after the moon has begun to exert its influence, when he loses the spirit germ of his physical body, which has already contracted and shrunk a great deal. These expressions are naturally coarse ones, but you will understand what I mean. This spirit germ of the physical body descends in advance of the human being himself, is passed to the parents, implants itself in a fertilized human embryo, and there becomes the growth element before the human being descends himself. In other words, the germ of the body is already given over to earthly life at a time when we ourselves are still, in a sense, looking down upon the earth and seeing what will become of what we will be part of. As yet, we still live free in the cosmos. Now the human being draws from the etheric world of the cosmos the powers needed for his etheric body, so that his being now consists of I, capital, astral body, and etheric body. And having acquired his etheric body in this way, he now unites with what his physical germ has become, 
which he himself first sent down in advance. There is a huge wisdom in this sending down of the physical human germ in advance and the subsequent coalescence, if I can call it that, of the etheric body. Imagine what would happen if in the pre-birth world we retained the configuration of our physical body while gathering our etheric body together, and the physical body was not yet infused by physical substance, but only consisted of the forces that could later be infused with it in the womb. Imagine we did not send it down in advance, but already imbued it with the etheric body before we had arrived in the substance of the physical embryo, and with what is offered us there. What would happen? By grasping what would happen, we can feel great wonder at the wisdom at work in the universe. If things were not as they are, then with every thought we formulate, every tendency toward evil we possess would stand before us. It would be as if we had a living memory continually of the slightest evil of any kind we had done on earth, evil, even one committed in thoughts or feelings. The content of our conscience would run rampant in us, especially any kind of transgression and then we would be unable to form any neutral thought about anything. For instance, we would be unable to develop a knowledge of nature. If we wished to observe plants objectively and discern the natural laws at work in them, our observations would easily be tinged with thoughts such as these, quote, What an awful person you were when you were sixteen, and what terrible things you did! Close quote. This would color our observations and make it impossible to form a neutral or objective view. The fact that we can keep these things apart, our simple neutral observations from our moral or immoral instincts, is something we owe to the fact that we first send down our physical spirit germ and only then unite with this physical body once we have drawn our etheric body together. By virtue of this, we hold these two aspects so far apart that in the physical body our memory can be held back, and not always impinge, leaving us free so that our whole moral life especially is not always present before us. We can form thoughts in the etheric body of a neutral, reflective kind. I have therefore now described how the human being descends from the world of spirit up to the moment when he unites with physical earth substance so as to be able to live on the earth. What emerges from this? As I said, it becomes apparent that there is a great cause for wonder at the wise guidance at work in the universe when we realize that we first send down the configuring powers of our physical human body and then follow ourselves. If I really grasp this vividly, I need not stand there empty-headed like someone who manufactures a machine and feels no need to admire it. I would have to be very arid indeed if I gazed at the revelation of such huge wisdom without an outpouring of wonder. The same is true of all anthroposophic insights. The ordinary earthly knowledge we grasp in our waking minds 
largely addresses our rational nature, and less so our feelings. This is not true of the insights we acquire from the world of spirit in inward experience. These address our whole being. In fact, they reorganize us entirely as we acquire and assimilate them. Spiritual scientific insights will not, unlike physical knowledge, leave us cold. But this does not make them any less objective. If someone were to say that insights that engage our sensibility are not objective, are subjective, we can consider the following. If you stand in front of the Sistine Madonna by Raphael, you'd have to be pretty thick-skinned to have no sense of wonder at it. But no one would dream of saying that the picture is simply subjective and Raphael's Madonna has no objective existence. You see, we do not have to suppress all feelings of sympathy or antipathy in our souls when we look at an objective phenomenon. It is a matter only of ensuring that our subjective response does not disturb its objective reality. Of course, if we think something is an objective perception, because it pleases us to assume it, this is due to our own predilection and therefore not objective. But if we find ourselves before something as objective as the insights I have described and then feel a sense of great wonder, such wonder will certainly not cloud the objectivity of the insight. The essential quality of anthroposophic or spiritual scientific insights is that they do not address our rational mind alone, our head, but our whole being. Someone who becomes familiar with truths of this kind in increasing number, truths that relate to the life of the human being between death and a new birth, will find a life of feeling springing up in him and subsequently a will life too. This means that we imbue our impulses for action with the insights we gain from higher worlds. And then we feel our task here on earth to be that of fulfilling what we were in the life of spirit between death and a new birth. A truly experienced anthroposophy, therefore, certainly has the intrinsic power to fill the whole human being, just as did instinctive clairvoyance and instinctive connection with the world of spirit for ancient humanity. But what has made us such intellectuals nowadays, and why were ancient people not like this? It is because in those times what people knew, the laws they lived by, originated in their whole being. Today, for instance, we learn geometry, are taught, say, what a vertical is. But for us, mostly, this floats. Well, not in the air, one cannot even say that, in an ideal realm and people fail to see any connection with themselves. We would never actually be able to gain any sense of a vertical if we ourselves had not become vertical, learning to stand upright. We therefore feel the nature of verticality in our movements, and what the whole person, and what the whole person experiences, his head experiences too, and conceptualizes it as the vertical. Similarly, what we experience when we spread out our arms leads to an experience of the horizontal. Originally, human faculties lived in our whole being, 
but this gradually confined itself to the head, which can only represent things pictorially. And what does our head do? When I walk, I live in a different way from when I drive in a car. The car drives along and I rest inside it. The head does the same thing, really. It is lazy and piggybacks on the rest of my organism. It allows itself to be transported, and everything in it is at rest, like sitting in a train carriage. This is why everything becomes abstract image, an abstract state we have arrived at through the long course of earthly evolution. But we must return to a state that allows us to grasp the spiritual within existence, and this is something that takes hold of our whole being. This is the reverse process from the one that happened with ancient peoples, but by means of it, we can again come to inquire into the whole human being, can thus return to a culture and civilization that fills our whole nature and being. Today there are some who listen to what spiritual science presents and then say, quote, how odd these anthroposophists are. They propound spiritual scientific truths and say these are needed by humanity. No doubt worlds such as the spiritual scientists describe may indeed exist, but what does this matter to us? We can happily wait until we die, and then we'll see if there's truth in it. What is the point in exerting ourselves here to understand the nature of a world of spirit? But they are, quote, close quote. But they are mistaken. You see, if you wish to understand the significance of spiritual perception, I'm speaking, of course, of the kind that healthy common sense can entertain once a spiritual researcher has made his findings known. The best way to do so is by engaging with an explanation arising from spiritual research of the first stage of supersensible knowledge, that of imagination. Let me describe a few characteristics of this. Ordinarily, we are only aware of the present moment, conveyed to us by our physical body, which lives in space. Space, with its three dimensions, represents the present moment, and we are only aware of this. A memory, you see, exists from the present perspective. We do not re-experience what we experienced ten years ago when we remember it, but only have an image of what we experienced one that is therefore fairly shadowy and abstract. By seriously undertaking the exercises I describe in title Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, to acquire the capacity of imagination, it gradually becomes possible not just to live in the present, but to overcome the shadowy nature of memory and to live also in one's past memories. Thus, in 1922, it is possible to re-experience things that happened in 1911 in the same vivid way as one originally experienced them. If you make special efforts to live in thoughts, and I do not mean living in abstractions, but in something fully tangible, which allows you to grasp how living in thoughts brings with it moments of destiny and all kinds of experience, profound sympathy and antipathy as otherwise only actual material life on earth. Besides your ordinary experience of your spatial body, you will also come to an experience of your temporal body. If I 
Cut my big toe, for instance. This hurts, and I have an immediate experience of pain, and not just a memory of this pain, even though the head is a good distance away from the foot. There is, of course, a spatial connection between head and toe, and the experience of time is different. If at the age of 30 you think back to what you experienced when you were 16, which is now removed from you in time, the memory is pale. Or picture what you felt when you lost a dearly loved person, say 13 years ago, and how pale this pain now is compared to the reality you felt at the time. But if you acquire the capacity for imaginative perception through the exercises described in Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, so that you know how to live in thoughts, that is, in pure sense-free thoughts, as I described in Title The Philosophy of Freedom, then you will live simultaneously with equal vigor in every part of your temporal body in the same way that you ordinarily live in every part of your spatial body. Then at fifty or sixty or even eighty, you do not just look back five years, but since present existence extends across the whole of one's life, you are immediately present in every moment of your life. This immediacy and presence, however, is bought at the cost of its fugitive, fleeting character. If you are able to experience with this vividness something that occurred when you were 18, it won't fade quite as rapidly as a dream, but you cannot hold fast to it. You have to forget it again. And as a spiritual researcher, if one found no other aid or remedy, this would place you in a very difficult situation. You would be able to create the connections by means of which you can discern things in the etheric world, but you would immediately forget them again. For this reason you have to resort to all kinds of aids. I described the details of this in Title Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, so that what you acquire through this spiritual etheric vision does not immediately disappear again. It will certainly fade after a couple of days with the same rapidity as a person's ether body fades and dissipates after death. This experience I have described gives one insight into the whole nature of the etheric. Accounts of the life after death are not fabricated, but one from living perception. However, if you wish to use aids, as I described, mere head activity will never be sufficient. I am describing what I myself experienced when I noticed the fleeting nature of such perceptions in the etheric cosmos. However much you perceive initially, after a week you have to have recourse to something else if you are to tell others of your experiences. But this help is not available from the head's capacities. One excellent remedy for the problem is to write down what has been experienced while it is still vivid, an activity that does not pass through the head, therefore, but through the writing hand. I do not mean mediumistic writing, nor writing with the aim of recording and preserving the experience. Recording things in this way, even writing down the content of a lecture afterward, is actually something extremely unattractive from a spiritual perspective. But it is an aid to fixing something otherwise very fleeting by getting the whole organism to participate in it in a way we otherwise only do in drawing or painting.
then it remains in your organism and there is no further need to appropriate it again afterward. It is just a question of fixing things. You have to fix them through something that involves your whole being and writing down what you experience is one such means. But be clear that you are not involved here in any kind of intellectual activity. The only thing that counts is the flow of writing itself. Or you can also make a symbolic drawing, painting or such like. You can see from this the intimate connection between the whole human being and the capacity to convey in ordinary ideas what one perceives in the world of spirit. Having, in quotes, translated such perceptions, one can convey them to others who do not have spiritual perceptions, but who grasp them through these same ideas with their healthy human reason. They then possess the same ideas as the clairvoyant presents to them. To discern and discover spiritual scientific truths, a clairvoyant art is needed. But to live with these truths one does not need it. One need only bring healthy powers of insight and understanding to bear on what is communicated. But from what I have said, you can gather something else. What we are spiritually in our ether body does not live in space but in time. Consider the physical organism, for instance the eye, E-Y-E. You perceive visible things by means of it. If you pluck out your eyes, you can no longer see visible things. If you consider our spiritual nature, this is in a sense the whole stream passing from one life to another existing between death and a new birth, then in physical life on earth and then again in a life between death and rebirth. All this is a unity. In ancient times, people were naturally endowed with clairvoyant faculties on earth. In other words, they had a connection with worlds of spirit simply by virtue of natural powers. And this was reconfigured in them so that they could take it with them again through death as long as their knowledge of the spirit did not cease. In our modern era, this knowledge must not cease either. We must acquire it while here on earth in the ongoing stream of our existence. Once your life on earth has ended, if you knew nothing at all of the spirit while you were alive, this is precisely the same for spiritual life as plucking out your eyes would be for your power of physical vision. What you learn on the earth as knowledge about the life of spirit belongs to you. It is the eye, E-Y-E, with which you later see between death and a new birth. But if you remain in the dark, in quotes, on earth, in relation to knowledge of the life of spirit, you will be blind to it after death, and then between death and rebirth it will be like passing through a valley of darkness. You have to develop your eyes for the world of spirit, through what you acquire here on earth. And by negating or excluding any knowledge of it, you are actually plucking them out. Humanity has to become fully aware of this. Now that an ancient instinctive clairvoyance has faded altogether, humankind must realize that organs to perceive the spirit must again be developed by efforts such as those undertaken in the anthroposophic movement. You can't wait until death. 
It is not true to say that no efforts are needed to understand spiritual worlds, because you will find out what the world of spirit is like after death. Certainly you'll see something. But for the soul it will be like dwelling in a dark dungeon. If in this life, between birth and death, we have not developed an eye for life in the spiritual worlds, EYE. The dogma that there is no need to concern oneself with supersensible existence during life on earth is wholly misguided. In fact, we live in an era when we must try to meet our true supersensible obligations to the cosmos. And this is something we only do if we acknowledge that between birth and death we must acquire an I-E-Y-E for the spirit. Then after death, things will not be shrouded in darkness for us and we can experience the light that will then be around us. Some time ago when I was here, I spoke of our relationship with the spiritual world and ended by saying this, In our era we have reached the point where it is necessary for a core of people to form who recognize the need for spiritual scientific insight and knowledge. What I have said today doubly confirms this. We live in an age when the world of spirit wishes to show itself to us during our life on earth. We must not close the doors and windows through which it can enter. We must draw back the curtains and let in the light of the world of spirit for the sake of life on earth itself. We must let it shine in for the sake of the life we live between death and a new birth. We must hearken to the voices that speak spiritually to us from the world of spirit and must say, quote, It is time for us to perceive the light of the spirit and hearken to the voice of the spirit. Close quote. Once we have come to know what spiritual scientific insights can tell us of the needs of contemporary life, the right outlook will prevail in any domain of work we will recognize our obligation to lead humanity to the point where it sees that the time has come to perceive the light of the Spirit, to hear the voice of the Spirit, and to understand it. In times when geographical distance separates us, let us remain united, let us stay connected to these thoughts, and especially in this feeling and outlook. I'd like to leave you with this greeting, quote, May the word spoken when destiny brings us together, hold sway amongst us as thought, as a spiritually present sense of belonging when we can no longer be gathered in one place. Quote. But nevertheless, I hope I will soon be able to speak further of these things in your midst. The end of lecture 15.